idea about what was going to happen with this kind of undertaking, whether it was a fully formed idea or whether it was some vague notion in your, in your mind. So here you are moving towards the end of your first full day of retreat. So for many of you, this is the first time you've had this experience of being in seclusion, doing intensive practice and being cut off from your devices. So a first thing to say is, in a very real kind of way, there's a kind of withdrawal that we go through from our usual routine and our usual comforts when we come into this kind of practice environment. In a certain kind of way, a lot of our usual supports are stripped away. You know, we, we can't go to the phone and check our text messages and you know, we can't go to the fridge and uh, get a beer. We can't turn on television and watch something mindless. So here we are, kind of left with our own bodies and minds, and you know, we're not even talking. We're not even, you know, looking at people in, in the eye and, you know, smiling at them. Here we are, just with our own material. So it's not necessarily an easy thing, especially if the mind is holding some fixed expectations or hopes about what should be happening. So those of you who have been on retreat many times, you're kind of uh, aware of the suffering that arises in the mind when we have a template about how reality should be and then it actually turns out to be different. And this is an important insight into the nature of mind, that we have many, many ideas, conscious and unconscious, many preferences, conscious and unconscious, that we would like to implement in the immediate term about how things should be and what we should be experiencing. We really wish that we had control, we really want it. I mean, let's face it, if if we could, we would like to have everything be pleasant and easeful, only to become increasingly pleasant and easeful as each experience uh, changed, it would only be getting better and better and happier and happier and there'd never be a crack in the ice uh, through which we fell into dukkha or suffering. We would love to get it to be that way. And in fact, our minds undertake many different versions of planning and scheming and uh, attempts to manipulate immediate experience to allow things to to be more to our satisfaction. And this is part of our very confusing status as being a human being. So we know that we have some control over things. You know, we do have some control, we do have some uh, influence over things, right? I mean, we know for instance, okay, there's certain things I can do now that will either result in immediate satisfaction or things that I can do now that uh, will lead to something that I want to do, right? Like if I get up in the morning and uh, 
do my uh, my homework when I'm in school and do a good job at that, then I'm probably going to get a better mark. And then maybe if I get a better mark, then I'll get into a better school. And if I get into a better school, I'll get a better job. And then I'll have more money. And then I'll have a bigger house. And then I'll be able to retire and be financially secure. You know, all kind of like spooling out from this, I've got homework in the morning, right? (laughs) And, you know, some of this is wise. I mean, things are linked to other things. Wise, skillful action in the world does, generally speaking, lead to better outcomes than unwise, unskillful action in the world. But the question is, how much control do we have in any given moment? What is actually available to us? There was a, an experiment done a number of years ago with uh, um, mice and pellets of food. So the experiment w- was this. So when the mice pressed a lever, a pellet of food would roll down and then they could eat it. So action, response, result, reliable, reliable. But they found that under the circumstances where when the mouse pressed the lever, the pellet only sometimes rolled down the chute and became available. It had a very interesting effect on the mice, which was they become became kind of crazed with making the effort to get the pellet. They would just like keep pushing the lever, pushing the lever, pushing the lever, pushing the lever, trying to get something to happen because, hey, sometimes it did. They would actually work much harder with this kind of intermittent reinforcement than they did when the, re- the result was consistent. So does that sound a little bit like us? So it would be interesting uh, to consider how many times today you've had the experience of wanting what was happening to be a certain way or wanting what was happening to not be the way that it was. Has anybody noticed any of those mind moments today? Whether it was, you know, wanting a particular sensation in the body to go away or wanting to be able to feel the breath more clearly or wanting to be able to um, not think or wanting to be able to not be sleepy or wanting to experience peace. All of these wantings and not wantings. This is the constant seesaw of the mind. Wanting this kind of sensation in the body, not wanting that kind of sensation in the body. Liking uh, the color of that person's scarf, not liking that person's clothes, thinking, you know, this uh, food on the table is good, wanting something else to be on the table. You know, wishing there were 240 count sheets on the beds, um, 
feeling disappointed that you forgot your own pillow. I mean, it just kind of goes on and on, right? So the Buddha talks about this particular insight in his teachings called the teachings on the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, which are really the core teachings of the Buddha. So his first teaching, uh, very paradoxically, if if you were going to say, well, what does the Buddha think about this whole situation about being a human being and how we can come to some sort of uh, peace and resolution and harmony with uh, our many uh, wants and discontents and live with some sort of ease, he says the very first insight that it's important for us to know is that there is difficulty, there is dissatisfaction that there are certain ways in which it's baked into the cake that there's going to be this rotating experience of things that we want, things that we don't want, craving for the things that we want, you know, aversion or uh, resistance to the things that we don't want and a total blanking out or loss of um, any kind of contact with reality when things get more neutral in terms of how they are experienced are more of the mid-range kind of experience. So the Buddha says, well, you know, this is baked into the cake. You know, when other things are baked into the cake, there's the experience of what he called the eight worldly winds, pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and uh, notoriety or disrepute. He says every human being has these uh, these current life has these currents moving through it. It's like we can cannot just get on the upside and stay there. We are conditioned by the world in which we live, by our own actions, by the the actions of others. Think about how much change has happened in our uh, own culture here in the United States. Uh, since, for instance, just the economic collapse in 2008. I mean, many, many people receiving or the results of that particular thing that happened with the economy and then the ripples and the reverberations going out and out and out and causing many other things, things to happen. But no one of us could have prevented that but we're in the soup and we all experience the effects of it even as we uh, contribute wisely or unwisely to the, the situation in which we find ourselves. So then the question is, how can we as human beings become empowered, can find wise agency can find a way to be in the world, this ever-changing world with these oscillations of pleasant and unpleasant and neutral and praise and blame and gain and loss and pleasure and pain. How can we be there with a sense of peace if we can't control the input into these six senses that we have? 
know, if we could, we, if we, we could just turn the knob to the peace and tranquility and joy channel and keep it there, j- could just select for that and have it be that way, to always have pleasure, to always have gain, to always have praise, to always have ease, to not have unpleasant states of body and mind. If that, le- that could be invented, I would say, fantastic, sign me up, I'm at the head of the list. But since that's not the case, because this seems to be uh, part of the nature of reality, this uh, impermanent, changing, conditioned uh, world that we live in, we've got to find another way to figure out how to relate to what John Kabat-Zinn sometimes calls the full catastrophe the full catastrophe of human living. So you might say to yourself, well, what are we doing here that has anything to do with finding our way into a state of empowerment in relationship to the inevitable and largely uncontrollable change that is the tapestry of our experience? What is, what is the relationship between what we're doing here and that empowerment? I can remember the first uh, residential retreat I went on, and I've told this story before, so some of you may have heard it, but um, first residential retreat I went on, I, I was sort of talked into going on it by a co-worker, Stephen Levine was coming to town and she said, come on, come on, it'll be great. It'll be great. We'll go and we'll do this like retreat probably a little shorter than this maybe at this old Catholic seminary. And so I thought, okay, I, I could use a break. You know, I could use some ease and, uh, you know, I've, I've wanted to learn how to meditate. So I'll go, I'll go. Uh, along with it. I'll go along with it. And she had the car, so I couldn't leave. Uh, But I got there, and there were instructions given that were very much like the instructions that were given this morning, the kind of foundational uh, meditation instructions where in the sitting practice you're encouraged to find your way into... uh, present tense awareness of sensations in the body and then focus on the breath, see if you can find the sensations of the breath. And then, and then the walking instructions were very much like Anushka um, gave you, uh, you know, feel the sensations in the body as you, you know, lift your feet and put them down, you know, uh, placing, placing, or lifting, moving, placing, and just feel the sensations. And you know, they made a big point in the instructions of saying, so when you go out and you do your walking practice, you know, just find a, just find a place that's, you know, maybe 30 feet long. And, you know, don't, don't look around, you know, just like feel your feet walking. And then when you, when, then when you get to the end of the length, you know, just stand there and feel your body and then feel your body turn around and, and then just walk back in the other direction, 30 feet, and then stop and feel your body standing and, you know, just feel the sensations. And then they dropped in the comment of, you know, this isn't about getting any place. And I, I, you know, watched my mind 
as I, you know, went outside, I had to, and attempted to do this, and it just threw this enormous internal fit. Like, why are they having us do this? This is so stupid. What is, what is the point of this? They just said, you know, it's not to get any place. We're not even going any place with the walking. We're just doing this, like, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. You know, it was like an inner version of taking uh, my roller skate and banging it on the sidewalk all over again, right? But this was an interesting thing, right? I was asking my mind to do this very simple thing that it didn't find intrinsically rewarding or intrinsically pleasant or intrinsically interesting. But I was asking it, I was being asked to attend to this particular field of experience and when the mind went away and off into la-la land to come back and to, you know, reground attention and do this again and again and again. So this is the same thing that you've been asked to do and I'm guessing that for at least some of you who have a a more aversively conditioned temperament that you may have felt this same kind of uh, resistance or internal complaint about what you're being asked to do here. I can remember years ago having a friend who uh, was an attorney and I, I asked him what law school was like and he said, well, you know, if you can imagine something that's really hard but boring, <laughs> that's it. And maybe in some way you may have felt a little sampling of this because it can seem to be very tedious because our minds are used to seeking and looking for and pursuing more obviously pleasant sensations at will, right? They're always the the radar dish of the mind is always rotating, kind of looking for you know what it could get that would be interesting or rewarding or pleasant. So when we move into a low stimulus environment like that and ask it to attend to something that's kind of neutral and at least initially not particularly interesting, very often it just like immediately slips off to go find something interesting or it goes away and wanders around and finds some problems to engage in, whether it's problems and complaints about the current conditions or life problems or complaints or perhaps future complaints, present complaints about possible future (laughs) events arising in in the moment. So these minds, when they're undisciplined, they wander hither and thither following these, uh, these conditionings based on pleasantness and unpleasantness. They actually have very little capacity to attend evenly to experience. So why would you want to develop a capacity to be able to attend evenly to experience. 
think back at the first part of this talk and the discussion about the ever-changing tapestry of impermanent things and how we cannot control what we're going to experience in the immediate sense and how we have limited control about uh, what comes to us through these larger uh, currents in the, in the conditioned world around us. You know, we can't be the gatekeeper of experience like, you know, a soccer player that's trying to, you know, keep everything out of the net. So these things come to us, the non-preferred things come to us. The preferred things that we experience go away. This is inevitable. This is the truth of impermanence or anicca that that the Buddha talks about as a, a first, one of the first meditative uh, insights that arises in depth practice. You start to realize that, well, however it is now, it's not going to stay that way. You know, in the small group that uh, I had this morning, uh, this afternoon, that was one of the things that we talked about a little bit. When somebody was talking about their, a ex- couple of different people were talking about their experience, you know, one of the ways I responded to it was by saying, look, notice how it changes. Notice how it unfolds, notice how it weakens, notice how it goes away. Inclining the mind to, to realize that things are not fixed. And because they're not fixed and they can't be fixed, i.e. set in a, a, a state of uh, permanence, then a mind that relates to reality with that insistence or with that agenda is going to be very unhappy and it's going to expend a lot of futile energy in trying to control the input. So imagine what it would be like if instead of trying to control the input, the energies of the mind were employed in being receptive in a non-reactive way to the actual real-time experience. And from a state of balance, from a state of grace, could be in touch with that unfolding expression of reality in a way that allowed it to have the least suffering and the maximum happiness. So this process that we're doing here, this very simple process of learning initially to attend to the sensations in the body and the breath and the sensations of walking all tie back into this. All tie back into this bigger picture of training the mind to be able to be steady and open and allowing, which gives it tremendous power Think about, um, for instance, the martial art of Aikido. Aikido. Is anybody here a practitioner of that? Yeah. So this is a very interesting martial art because unlike 
heart styles of martial arts that use a lot of obvious force. Um, The whole method of Aikido, the whole practice, is to blend with the attacker, blend and redirect, to actually harmonize so closely with the person who is attacking you that you use their own momentum against them. Your very non-resistance to what is uh, being directed at you becomes your place of balance, your place of power. And the mind can learn this in terms of all of the dimensions of its experience at the fo- at the six sense doors. It can learn this same kind of completely connected, non-violent, harmonious, wise relationship to experience regardless of whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. And it all starts back into cultivating these very fundamental skills of being able to find real-time experience, i.e. present moment experience, opening to it at a very simple, in a very simple way, using this kind of attention that we call mindfulness. That's really the key to all of it. Now I'm sure some of you have had the experience today, you know, this morning I was talking about the inner the puppy and training the puppy and the tone of working with the puppy and, you know, how if you want to enlist the cooperation of the puppy, um, the puppy has to trust you. So I'm imagining today for a lot of you as you you took your own minds out for a little uh, walk today, that you had your own experiences of the inner puppy doing this and doing that, right? Not not wanting to walk nicely, not wanting to, uh, you know, go this way, wanting to go that way instead, you know, sitting down uh, in, instead of trotting along uh, on the task to which you've assignment, maybe taking a big, you know, poop in the middle of the sidewalk and... You know, maybe rolling over on its back and like biting the leash. And, you know, these, these uh, mind puppies, they, they don't so much like this training thing in its early stages. Right? But, but it really is a, a process of calling on the, our wholesome qualities of mind, uh, qualities of mind that are uh, called the paramis. And, bringing them forward to continue to figure out how to go about this. So applying our mind's capacity to be present, to receive information and feedback from, you know, our various uh, attempts to practice, and using um, this experiential laboratory that we have here and learning learning from what results from the kind of effort or the kind of attention we're deploying. So there's no way that you can learn how to do this 
without being really bad at it at first. So just so you know. So you might feel like you're being really bad at it because the mind is not, you know, used to attending in real time in this very simple kind of way. And I'm sure you've seen it slip away many, many, many times today, right? Into thought, most often, into various types of rumination, into into fantasy, or, you know, maybe it's it, the body is uh, painful and creaking, and maybe it gets sleepy, and then you're falling asleep as soon as you you know, close your eyes and you try to focus on the breath and, you know, you slide right down the chute into dreamland or maybe you've got another version where you sit down and the mind and the body are so restless, you know, you the mind can't really s- settle on the breath. It's like ricocheting off into into thought. Or maybe the mind is, is producing uh, a lot of doubt where the mind gets into a lot of speculation and complexification about things. Oh, is that what they really, really mean? Was the, is that really the breath that I'm feeling, though? But maybe, maybe that's not the breath. Maybe that's just, you know, the diaphragm. But am I feeling it moving? But I don't know. Or I wonder if this is really the place that I should be. You know, I don't really, I'm not sure I'm... I belong here, maybe some other place is better for me just because of the kind of person that I am or I'm sure I'm the only one of, who's like this here. And Maybe I should have, you know, gotten a cabin in Maine instead. <laughs> you know, I'm sure if I, if I, sure if I only check my cell phone and, you know, if I... If I, if you know, if I only you know could get a little bit of a, a video of what the cats are doing at home, then, you know, I'd know it would be okay. And then, so, so you're seeing the various strategies that we deploy when the mind is asked to do this very simple thing that it's not used to to doing, and it feels like it's not very good at doing it it kind of throws a little shit fit. It's a Dharma term. <laughs> so, you know, just to know that every everybody, this is part of the process. One of, one of the first insights when you're learning how to meditate is when you consistently turn mindfulness towards your immediate experience, you start to realize that your mind is all over the place. It's just all over the place. And that there doesn't seem to be like a a really uh, well-balanced set of controls that you can operate to get it to kind of do what you want it to do very easily. I remember, <laughs> I remember once I. Uh, was wanting to buy a car and it would be my first new car. So I, I was kind of looking at this. I kind of like fast cars, but I was I was looking at um, this car. It was a, a Mazda M6, I think was the, you know, back when they still had the rotary engines and it was kind of fast. 
I figured, okay, I'm going to buy last year's model. It's still new. It's still on the lot. I could probably get a good deal. And I can remember going for the, the test drive in this. And um, as I started driving, the saleswoman was in the uh, other, other seat in the front. And she said, and I started to notice as I was driving that there seemed to be like something off about the steering. Like the steering wheel itself seemed to be like not right, correctly aligned. And then in the, probably it had major collision and that's why it was still on the lot. But as I was, you know, trying to steer it, I, I, said, to, I said to her, there's something about the steering that feels, you know, off. It feels... Uh, really wrong, it doesn't, and she goes, oh, it's such a lovely day out, look at the trees, look at the trees, they're so nice, isn't it a lovely day? Yeah, but the steering wheel is not, it's not working, you know? So, you know, the steering, the steering wheel doesn't work. The control mechanisms uh, actually are not available to us in the way that we would like to. And yet, and yet, even though we don't have immediate control of what we experience, as we practice, we gain more influence, more ability to actually bring forward what is wholesome, what's skillful, what's beneficial, what's beautiful in our heart and mind. So you need to think of this process more as a process of cultivation, right? Knowing what it is that you want to cultivate and realizing that there's a natural and organic process that's part of this cultivation that will cause the kind of experiences, the kinds of states, the kind of qualities of heart and mind that you really want to have as part of your experience to arise but it's not a command and control model but we can plant the wise seeds the skillful seeds that will lead us in the direction of the kind of happiness that we want and the mind itself can become much more pliant much more cooperative much more confident, much more wise in relationship to its experience, and a lot better at recognizing what kind of experience or what kind of influence it has in any given situation, what it can control, for instance, what kinds of states of mind it might be able to let go of under certain circumstances, what kinds of relationship it can have to particular body sensations that would be wise and skillful. And which ones call for harmonizing with things as they are and letting go of any attempt to make it different. So, you know, these very simple instructions are are the kind of foundational uh, entry point into both this process of cultivation and this process of investigation. So we don't have uh, immediate control, generally speaking, but interestingly enough, 
one of the things that the Buddhist teachings uh, really point to is that we have ultimate control. We don't have immediate control of what arises most often, but we have ultimate control of the direction in which our own hearts and minds develop. So that's a kind of powerful insight. We have ultimate control of the evolution of our own hearts and mind. But without a capacity for sustained mindfulness, we cannot do the kind of cultivation that leads to the results that are in our own deepest interest and in service of our happiness and our effectiveness in being an agent of peace and wisdom in the world. So if you want to empower yourself, look to the process that we're doing here right now, the first step that you're in, which is finding real-time experience, learning how to tune into it in a way that's skillful, that's mindful, and then developing skill and capacity to work with the difficulties that arise in the course of that experiential learning. Because it is a challenging process. And there will be many experiences that come come forward. But the mind can learn to recognize them for what they are and not be thrown off balance by them, but maintain its uh, seat. So this is within our capacity as human beings. When the Buddha was asked after his awakening, well, you know, so somebody saw him walking on the road and he looked very radiant and the, the person came up to him and said, well, so what are you? You know, are you like a, are you like a god or something? You know, are you like a, a deva? What are you? And he basically said, no, I'm, I'm awake. I'm awake. So the seeds of this are, are in all of us. And, uh, yeah, it, the method might be walking back and forth on a 30-foot path, back and forth, back and forth. That's the method. But that's not the point. That's the means. Right? So, just to encourage you all to take uh, full opportunity of the, of the deepening of uh, understanding that's possible for you here uh, in your time. So, very rare and precious thing to have the circumstances to wind up in this kind of place, uh, doing this kind of deep internal learning. So I have confidence in you. May the merit of our practice that we do here together be a cause and condition of our own happiness and well-being 
and contribute to the happiness and well-being of all beings without exception. So now we have a walking period and then our, our metta practice period with a little bit of chanting, which will be fun, you'll see. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.